Hey, what's going on, everybody? My name is Jacob Cozypat, and welcome to my podcast, Keepin' Cozy. Like many young professionals, I'm still finding out my answer to that old question, what do you want to do when you get older? I've spent time talking with many different established professionals, having meaningful conversations about their industries, current events, and how they figured out their answers to that very question. Now, as I go along my personal journey, I want to share that advice with you to help you keep calm and achieve greater clarity in an uncertain career field. This is Keepin' Cozy. Today's guest is Jim Roosevelt. Born in California as the grandson of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he has become one of the most respected members of the health insurance industry. After studying at Boston College's noisy neighbor Harvard for both his undergrad and law degrees, he served in the military, ran for Congress, and held the position of CEO of Tufts Health Plan, one of the biggest health insurance companies in Massachusetts. He is now a co-chair of the Rules and Bylaws Committee at the DNC and a practicing lawyer at Beryl Dana Law Firm. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm good, thank you, as, as well as we all can be under current circumstances. <laughs> of course. Thank you for being part of the show. Let's just get right into it. So the first question that you know we've come up with for today is, when a drug or vaccine is developed, what is the role of health insurance companies in getting that into the hands of everyday Americans? Right, so I think the model we can look at is uh, uh, regular flu vaccines. Uh, health insurance companies, first of all, very strongly encourage their members uh, to get flu shots. Uh, and those flu shots are uh, provided in most cases without any copays. Uh, so they're covered by the health insurance company and there are no copays. I see. So do you think when a vaccine or therapeutic drug treating COVID-19 specifically comes into market, would everyone be able to afford it? I think it's gonna be absolutely necessary that everyone be able to afford it. The ways in which they afford it, given our a hybrid system, are probably going to vary. People with uh, employer-based or individual uh, insurance with private insurance companies will uh, do it through that, I say, and as I say, probably without a copay. So therefore, it will be included in their uh, regular premium. People who are on Medicaid, or as we call it in Massachusetts, MassHealth, uh, would also receive it without any uh, copays. Uh, and uh, the big question will be, those places in the country where there's a number of uninsured. Now in Massachusetts, that's less than 2% of the population. Uh, uh, but in places like Florida and Texas, it's around 40% uh, of the population. Uh, yeah. That may require the federal government to step in and have a special payment program for people who are otherwise uninsured, uh, as it has been doing with, in theory, uh, with, uh, Test, uh, testing for uh, COVID-19 itself. I say in theory because most testing has only been available to, uh, uh, to healthcare workers, uh, almost all of whom are insured. But there is a program for covering people who are uninsured. I see, I see. So those 15 million Americans who are uninsured, you think the government will step in? to subsidize or give it away for free? I think for, uh, uh, for this vaccine, the government will step in to subsidize. There may be a fight over it uh, in the Congress, uh, 
because I think, uh, as the Senate has uh, indicated with regard to uh, Senator McConnell saying he doesn't want to uh, support uh, states and cities in their budget shortfalls, let them file for bankruptcy, he said. Yeah. Uh, I could see him saying he doesn't want people to, as he would put it, become dependent on the government to get them medical care. I think that will be uh, over, overwhelmed by popular sentiment and, and his colleagues will uh, see that uh, more clearly than he does. Yeah, yeah. So kind of on that note, for the countries that can't afford to give this vaccine the way that the United States could care for the 15 million uninsured, what do you think is going to happen with these countries where they just can't afford to give it out to every single person? Well, that's, a, a, of course, a very important question for two reasons. First of all, just for humanitarian reasons, uh, with uh, other people in other countries being in need, but also because, as we know, uh, highly contagious uh, uh, infections uh, in general, and this one in particular, uh, end up getting spread from one country to another, whether it's on goods being shipped or people traveling or whatever. So it's important that this be worldwide. The two examples we have to look at there are, first of all, treatment for HIV AIDS, uh, where the United States, under the leadership of former President Bush, uh, but together with uh, uh, Secretary Kerry uh, and the Clinton Foundation, has stepped up to uh, uh, subsidize or fund uh, treatment in many other countries. Now, one of the, uh, and the other one where similar, where similar things have happened is with the eradication of polio. Uh, one barrier to that at the moment is that one of the vehicles for coordinating that has been the World Health Organization. Yeah. And President Trump has proposed to uh, uh, starve the World Health Organization for funding. Uh, I think we can hope that by the time this is a reality, I, he will no longer be a factor. Yeah, I guess kind of on that specific note, could you talk a little bit more about what defunding the World Health Organization will mean in practical terms for people around the world and this vaccine? Yes. Yeah, so the World Health Organization, just like every other human organization, was not perfect in how it uh, handled this. It probably didn't sound a full alarm early enough, but it was... Uh, uh, fulfilling its role of spreading information about this coming catastrophe and of gathering data from around the world very early uh, early on. Uh, President Trump now says, well, they didn't point the finger at China. Well, you know what? Neither did he. Uh, our intelligence organizations did, uh, but, some, but his politics and some world politics got in the way. Nonetheless, the World Health Organization uh, is critical for uh, fighting disease of all kinds, but in particular, highly contagious infections uh, such as coronavirus and polio uh, and the ordinary flu. The, uh, 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 and without it, we would not be able, our CDC uh, and, and our NIH, would not be able to do their job for lack of information about what's going on elsewhere. So the idea that we will cut off our funding to the World Health Organization is, it's preposterous, it's also vicious. Yeah, kind of on the note of China, 
what would you say about rhetoric that you know has been used by both sides of the political spectrum now to kind of demonize China and its role for the coronavirus? Well, demonization is always a bad idea unless you're an exorcist. Okay, uh, so uh, 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 and that's and if you're an exorcist, it's because you think you can get rid of the demon. So. Uh, uh, that's a bad idea, whichever end of the spectrum it's coming from. However, being straightforward about whether we're getting good data, about whether steps are being taken to eliminate uh, uh, future sources of infection, and so on, is real. So, uh, you know, pe people point out that uh, people on, as you say, at the, at the ends of the spectrum, point out, for example, that the 1918 flu, not 1917, which President Trump keeps saying, but 1918, was referred to as the Spanish flu because there were Spanish sailors involved in their early, at least the early diagnosis of it, if not the early transmission of it. Uh, the fact is that it has a different meaning today to assign a country name uh, to a vaccine. It makes it sound like uh, one country is trying to poison the world. So I think it's important to recognize in reasonable discussion that both data and, uh, uh, and uh, attacking sources of future infection is important in every country, including China, and to speak up about that. Uh, I think that when it is used to say this is something that is uniquely harmful involving Asian people, Chinese people in particular, is racist. Yeah. To continue on this vein of political partisanship, um, the president has been using this phrase, we cannot let the cure be worse than the disease in regards to America shutting down. And many have complained about the economic stagnation that's going on because of the coronavirus. And we've even seen protests very funnily go along around the country because of it. I guess my question for you would be one, what are your thoughts on everything that's going on with this? If it's being fostered, this anxiety and, you know, anger at being forced to stay at home? And two, what do you think about uh, the American economy having to brace months of uncertainty? Well, the ec economic crisis is real. The numbers of people who are out of work, the numbers of businesses that uh, don't know whether they will be able to uh, reopen uh, uh, after this crisis has passed is, is, is terribly concerning. Uh, the, uh, uh, however, that again talked about being unhelpful. You can't let the cure be worse than the disease. This is a fatal illness. Even for those for whom it is not fatal, it, uh, some people have very light cases. That happens. It depends on their immune systems and how attenuated the uh, germs were by the time they encountered them and things like that. But even like the, the public health commissioner of Massachusetts, today finally returned to a public role in fighting this uh, disease after three weeks of being very ill and, and, uh, and recovering her strength. So uh, this is a very serious illness. The only cure that we have at this point is isolation and distancing. Hopefully before long we'll have testing and maybe that will lead to uh, recognizing antibodies that provide immunity. We don't even know yet if there are antibodies 
how much immunity those will provide. So to talk about the cure being worse than the, the disease, plants crazy ideas in people's minds that, well, I'll just take the, I'll just take the risk. First of all, it's not just their risk, although their risk could be very serious. It's the risk of their families, the risk of neighbors, the risk of uh, others in the community, and the risk of frontline health workers. Uh, uh, the, uh, the idea, you know, this, this, this thing where some states never did a full uh, shutdown or stay at home, and some states, uh, particularly Georgia and Florida, are now prematurely reopening public gatherings uh, and uh, giving permission for socially distanced haircuts and massages, whatever that means, uh, yeah. is just absolutely nuts to the point, I think, of being criminal. Uh, the, uh, 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 we've got to deal with a cure uh, and it's not worse than the disease because, yeah, we're facing an economic crisis unlike any since the uh, Great Depression, uh, which brought about the New Deal. Uh, but it is, uh, but at least people uh, will live to deal with it. Yeah. So, kind of talking about you know the programs to help people like that were created in the Great Depression. Do you think Social Security could be something that could intervene to help? with people being you know, financially insecure? And what would you characterize the stimulus as being or the running out of it? So um, the, uh, uh, let me take social security first and then talk a little bit about the so-called stimulus. Uh, the um, uh, social security uh, is you know, an absolutely vital lifeline for seniors, for widows, for uh, uh, children who have lost a parent, uh, and for disabled people. Um, there's a lot of good data now on how it should be strengthened by increasing its payments uh, and increasing its revenue. Uh, the National Academy of Social Insurance has a panel on that subject right now that I'm on uh, that will be coming out with recommendations and just uh, just uh, yesterday came out with a uh, statement on that. Uh, so Social Security is an important part. Without Social Security, we would have, uh, in the situation that existed in 1935, where a wage earner was supporting several generations uh, of, uh, usually in those days, his uh, family, uh, now at least seniors have a basic lifeline uh, of income uh, to deal with uh, housing and food uh, uh, and clothing. So Social Security and an expanded version of it are, continue to be very important. The, uh, when I say the so-called stimulus, this, because I think it's more accurate, it's really more accurate to refer to it as the rescue package. Uh, uh, yes, hopefully giving people money to spend will stimulate the economy. But what's really important now is rescuing working people and the businesses they work for. Uh, the um, initial versions uh, coming from uh, 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 the majority, uh, Senator, Senator McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, 
only address payment to big businesses and tax breaks for big businesses. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House and ultimately the Democrats in the Senate have been able to reverse that, but on each bill, they've had to go back and, and fight tooth and nail to increase the amount uh, to try to meet the actual need, to focus on uh, the uh, working people and their families uh, and small businesses. Uh, and uh, it's been a struggle on each, on each vote. You can't look at the final vote where it passes overwhelmingly. You have to look. The reason it takes longer than it should is struggling to get to language that people who care about uh, families and workers uh, are willing to are willing to vote for the and we're still facing cities and towns and many other organizations that should be uh, and states that should be getting funding uh, and suggestions like the states should go bankrupt. Nobody even knows. I mean. The, Technically, there's a way to do that. Uh, uh, nobody knows what that means because with a business that goes bankrupt, well, their obligations cease. That doesn't happen with a state government, particularly for any of its functions, but particularly in this crisis where the federal government has turned the, has, uh, has refused to take responsibility and has said it's up to states and their governors to find ways to uh, uh, deal with uh, the widespread infection and testing and protective equipment uh, and so on. Uh, as, somebody, as somebody else said, uh, but I thought I'd hit it right on the nail, it, it's as if at the beginning of World War II, uh, my grandfather, President Roosevelt, had said, we need thousands and thousands of new bombers. Would each governor, governor figure out a way to provide them? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't think bankruptcy for each state is possible either. But kind of going on the um, on the trend of political conversation, obviously this is a election year, and our presumptive nominee for the Democrats is Joe Biden. And as someone who is a lifelong Democrat, how do you feel about the increased divisiveness in the party? And do you fear a repeat of the 2016 election? So... Um... I'll, I'll talk directly to that in a minute. I, I'd like to point out that some of the divisiveness that we see in the country, such as these protests uh, demanding opening up and saying our our constitutional rights are being violated by keeping us at home uh, or not letting us buy guns in the middle of this crisis, uh, th that is uh, clearly what's known in politics as astroturf. It's not ordinary people getting out there there's now uh, a, a very clearly researched New York Times story within the last couple of days pointing out the six or eight uh, national right-wing organizations that are organizing and funding and supporting those protests. So that's the obvious divisiveness out there. Within the Democratic Party, um, the, uh, I, we all know that there was clearly divisiveness uh, in 2016, uh, uh, between uh, what you might uh, what you might call liberal progressives and and uh, farther left progressives, uh, the uh, uh, their goals were the same, but I can't say that they showed full respect uh, for each other or cooperation. 
despite that, Hillary Clinton had almost four million more votes uh, than uh, than Donald Trump, and it's only the quirk of the uh, electoral college process that it caused her to lose to lose the electoral college by approximately ninety thousand votes out of you know out of so many million. Uh, the uh, I think there has been over the last few months, more and more of a move toward uh, 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 toward overcoming divisiveness and cooperating to win this election uh, in in a lot in great contrast to 2016. Uh, people have been have saying, "Well, wasn't it awfully early for you know?" We started out with about 24 candidates for the Democratic nomination, yeah, and by March, we were down to two and then one. Uh, and people were saying, isn't it awfully early? And in one sense, it is. Uh, Senator Sanders didn't, dry, didn't endorse Hillary Clinton until the middle of June uh, last time. Uh, and uh, uh, that, uh, that's actually the reason that he had as many convention delegates and platform committee members as he did, because those were selected later on in the process. This time, the other Democratic candidates from across the spectrum, and it's all a spectrum that is to the left of center, it's just a question of how far left of center. Uh, uh, this time, all across that spectrum, uh, people have, uh, 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 both, both the candidates and their supporters, have begun largely to recognize that we must unite and yes, it's perfectly legit to have our internal debate on how far will we go toward uh, left progressiveness. An example for an example of that is uh, uh, Senator Sanders has done a very strong endorsement uh, uh, of Vice President uh, Biden. Uh, uh, he has pushed him, and Senator Biden has already moved on. Uh, Medicare eligibility age, and on uh, qualifications for student loan forgiveness. Uh, there's going to be more of that discussion and pushing and compromise coming up. The uh, so uh, I think uh, I think we shouldn't deny that there has been divisiveness, but the examples of it in this immediate time frame now at the you know in, in the latter part of April and going forward through the conventions in August and the general election in November is the divisiveness is diminishing the unity is increasing and the uh, and the progressive compromise is taking place uh, there are, there are exceptions Senator Sanders former press secretary tweeted at three o'clock in the morning about two weeks ago that she would never, didn't matter what Senator Sanders said, she would never support Vice President Biden. Well, first of all, I generally find on both sides of the aisle, 3 a.m. tweets should not be, uh, should not be relied on. Uh, uh, people say things at that time of the morning on Twitter that uh, they regret later on. But secondly, it's a big exception. Yeah, so I guess in summary, just asking one more time, one sentence, do you think that health insurance companies will make it a priority to allow for people to pay for coronavirus vaccines? And, you know, if I could just get, you know, closing remarks on the 2016 election. 
So uh, I believe that just uh, just as with uh, coronavirus uh, testing and treatment now, uh, when we have a vaccine, uh, uh, it will be fully covered uh, by health insurance companies and by other governmental mechanisms uh, that make it accessible to everybody uh, at no out-of-pocket cost. The uh, uh, I think the 2016 election, it's kind of appropriate to lead into it with that answer, because um, the 2016 election, uh, I think, is going to be run not on the overall economy, as we thought three months ago, but on the question of who is best to rebuild this country and to, on a scientifically sound basis, fight uh, the coronavirus. Uh, I think that uh, that's, I never think it's going to be easy to meet, to ache an unscrupulous, to beat an unscrupulous showman. Uh, but I think that it will be clear that uh, uh, Joe Biden is the person that the country absolutely needs to uh, put it on the path to recovery. Thank you. The second half of this podcast is talking about personal advice that you would give to a college student or a young working professional. So let's just start out with an interesting question. What is it like speaking at the DNC convention in front of thousands of people at once? Do you still get nervous? And what are some techniques you have found to be useful in public speaking? Well, so speaking at a Democratic National Convention is really a unique experience because not only are there hundreds of thousands of people watching you on television, which at least you can ignore because you can't see them, there is some, there's somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people usually right there in, in front of you. And you might say, well, those halls only have a, a capacity of 17 or 18,000. Well, that's for a basketball game or, or a hockey game. Uh, for a convention, first of all, they use the whole, the, the, what would be the basketball court, the floor, uh, which puts more people in there. And secondly, you generally put twice as many people in the hall as it was designed to hold. Uh, so it's quite, there is an element of, intimi of intimidation. Uh, they do rehearsals, actually. Uh, you do earlier in the day do a run-through, but that's before an empty hall. Uh, and I find you, ju you just have to focus, first of all, you have to know your message. Secondly, you have to focus on the message and I tend to think of, who am I addressing this to? That person that I'm looking at right there. Uh, and uh, if you can stick with that, uh, it also helps if you can follow a teleprompter. Uh, uh, you can be convincing and uh, not too, too nervous. Yeah. Are there any specific public speaking techniques that you do or you'd suggest? Well, you know, first of all, preparation always matters, uh, knowing your subject matter. Secondly, uh, going, going over, uh, some people like to do it in the mirror, uh, the way you want to deliver it. Uh, uh, but thirdly, really, as I say, I like to, I think, focusing on, I'm not, I'm not, right now, I'm not thinking about addressing hundreds of thousands of people. I'm thinking about addressing uh, Joe or Jane right out there in the middle of the audience. I see. I see. So transitioning to the second question, 
as someone who's been in positions of power, have you ever felt imposter syndrome in the past, especially when you get a title like CEO of, you know, the Tufts Health Plan? Well, uh, if what that means is, do you feel like, why am I qualified to do this? Uh, certainly taking on a task that has not been done in that particular context before uh, does make you say, why am I qualified for that? But if the if the emergency is enough uh, and if the need is great enough, uh, I find it it's pretty easy to get that out of out of your head. So, for example, when I took over as CEO of Tufts Health Plan, uh, for which I could only I couldn't talk with or meet with anybody in advance because I had to take over the minute it was a, the minute it was announced. Uh, I was dealing with a company that had gone from 1.1 million members in its health plan to 587,000 members over a space of less than two years. So there was an immediate crisis, and there were particular causes that, that yes, I had been able to identify as I walked into the job, and I just had to throw myself 100% into dealing with those causes while focusing on not just how do I do the substance, but how do I build, build people's confidence that it can be accomplished. So, uh, yes, saying, I don't know if, if this will work, but it's the only path I've got and I'm gonna do it. If that means imposter syndrome, well, yes. If that means paralysis because I say, why me? Uh, you don't have time for that. Well, I guess another question we kind of wanted to ask is, what is it like growing up as a Roosevelt? Um, what are some of the pros and cons that came along, you know, such, you know, a life? Well, of course, as a small kid, you don't realize your, your life is different from anybody else's. Uh, and uh, I sometimes mention that my grandmother, Eleanor Roosevelt, wrote a six-day-a-week newspaper column. I mean, even professional journalists don't do that anymore, that she wrote or actually dictated herself. Uh, uh, and I thought, I basically, I think as a small kid, first of all, learned to read looking at those uh, newspaper columns. And secondly, I think I kind of thought that's how everybody stayed in touch with their grandmother. Uh, uh, so uh, certainly that was different from average experience, but as a small kid, you don't realize that. And then you start to go through a phase where, uh, uh, let's say you are buying something in a store and you, and you give your name or in those, in those days, uh, uh, used what was called a charge card, and people say, oh, are you related to, and they might say, FDR, or usually, actually, oddly enough, they, even though this was when I was growing up, uh, in the 50s and 60s, they'd say Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, uh, and as, a, as a, an adolescent, and I've noticed the same thing with my, my kids uh, who are now in their uh, mid to late 30s, uh, as an adolescent, you tend to say, oh, well, not really, or distantly, or something like that. As you get a little older, you either just say yes or Oh yeah, uh, Franklin and Eleanor were my grandparents. Uh, and you get a variety of reactions to that. Some people say, 
wonderful. Some people say you're stop uh, stop giving me that line of bull. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, occasionally people will say my family always hated them, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, the uh, the reality of it is that growing up with uh, with a well uh, a well known name uh, and some famous ancestors uh, provides you with some opportunities. Sometimes. People are interested in talking to you because of that. Sometimes a door opens. Other times people make assumptions about you. Oh, you must be entitled. You must uh, be trading on your name and so on. So those things kind of balance out. And if you don't go and make your own accomplishments by preparation and hard work, uh, it will work out badly for you. And if you do, uh, you will, uh, you'll have some success. I see. So you once told me that you spent a year living in a silent retreat with monks. How did that impact your personal development and formation? <laughs> well, uh, I, I've said to you previously that um, you have to choose. You have to choose what you want to work hard on, uh, and what kind of preparation you want to do uh, in order to make out your own path and be successful. Um, I. Uh, uh, at a period of uh, in my life uh, where I thought that the right thing for me to do might be to be a member of a Catholic religious order. Uh, and so I joined the training program for that order uh, as actually a 17-year-old. And uh, that training program, which is called novitiate in Catholic religious orders, uh, involved study and prayer. And well, you could talk in, in your classroom meetings and so on, only, uh, only having 20 minutes a day when you could just chat with others and so on. So it was, uh, for me, it was a uh, very good opportunity to uh, learn more about uh, myself, uh, to think about the paths I might take and really come to a decision of whether this was the path that I was called to follow. Uh, the, uh, it's not unique. Uh, now former Governor Jerry Brown did this in the Jesuits. Uh, and while I did it for just under one year, he did it for three years. And he uh, doesn't describe it as a totally positive experience for himself. And he ended up embracing, he's sometimes referred to as a uh, liberal Democrat, uh, uh, Buddhist Jesuit Catholic. Uh, um, uh, and he ended up spending a lot of time exploring Buddhism and so on. Uh, for me, it deepened my uh, my faith and my commitment to the Catholic Church. While interestingly enough, uh, uh, enhancing my commit uh, my commitment to uh, uh, progressive forces in the Catholic Church as well as in society in general. Uh, is there any specific way that you think that that impacted your career life or the way you? relate with the church? Well, yes, uh, uh, a couple of ways. One, uh, one is that if I had, I grew up in Southern California, and as was the pattern then in Southern California, if I had gone straight from high school to college, I would have gone to college in California, as did all but two or three of my high school classmates. One went to West Point, 
one went to Princeton, and other than that, they all went uh, all went to college in California. Uh, pretty wide range of colleges, but uh, very selective ones and and community colleges and so on. Uh, by the time I had finished this year of reflection and study, uh, uh, I decided I wanted to do something broader and ended up uh, applying and having the good fortune to be admitted to Harvard. Uh, and I don't think I would have ended up with the same, uh, uh, the same range of interests and opportunities if I hadn't gone through that. I see. And as for my relationship with the Catholic Church, uh, what a greater depth of study gave me was uh, the interest in, in continuing to learn more about the uh, teachings uh, of the Catholic Church uh, and, uh, and then the uh, knowledge that there's room for debate and, uh, uh, and uh, as in every other human endeavor, being uh, uh, being uh, uh, deferential to authority it doesn't get you anywhere. So I guess kind of to wrap it up, what are some common mistakes you see young people make when they first start out their career? Well, you know, I think what people do when they're starting out their career, a lot depends on the environment they're stepping into, and it's a very different environment today than it was a year ago. Uh, uh, the uh, and so I think the the first mistake is to is to kind of give up, uh, apply for a few jobs and you don't hear back or you get turned down and say well there's just something wrong with me I give up uh, I'm moving in I'm moving into the basement uh, and uh, uh, and listening to my music uh, the the fact is the only thing that uh, that really lets you accomplish what you want to accomplish in life is to persist. To use uh, a well-known uh, phrase, nonetheless, persist. Uh, keep trying, keep, keep exploring. If a particular field doesn't seem to be hiring, well, what's something else maybe related to it that interests you? Uh, if you can't get hired at the level you think you ought to be, go on in as an intern uh, and get your foot in the door and work up from there. Uh, I just think uh, don't lower your sights, uh, but maybe change your uh, change your path. I see. Yeah. Are there any final remarks you'd want to make towards our audience of primarily college students? Yes. Uh, uh, it's a it's a privilege for me to have a chance to talk with college students at this challenging time. Uh, I hope that as as when I uh, came out of college during the Vietnam War, uh, you will look for various ways you can have both a positive impact on society and a way that will put you on a path that lets you ultimately make use of your experiences uh, to make a difference. So uh, don't give up, no matter how hard it is right now. <laughs> um, uh, accept something that you might not have thought was what you had in mind and just uh, keep going and you're going to succeed. Thank you so much for being part of this program and for your time and opinions. Okay. Fun to talk with you and your audience. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the second podcast. 
I appreciate you guys joining me for the second of what's sure to be a series of good conversations. I want to thank Jim again for coming on the program and for the insight he provided. I'm really glad he was able to share some of this really cool information about how health insurance and the government will most likely be able to cover the payment of the vaccines as they get produced. I also found his insight into the 2020 election helped me better understand the current political landscape in our country. Most importantly, I think his final bit of career advice spoke to me the most. Take what you can, but do what you want. Till next time, this is Keepin' Cozy.